0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to the Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now.
2: And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book, Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything.
1: On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote.
2: Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point.
1: Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, joined as always by Kelly Weill. Kelly, how you doing?
2: I am good, Will. How's it going with you?
1: Well, the big news is, as you know, we are three weeks away from my book on QAnon coming out. Trust the plan.
2: Hype, hype! Yes,
1: trust the plan. <laughs> available for pre-order now. Are you excited?
2: I'm so excited, but Will, I have to tell you something, and I kind of feel like we showed up at prom in the same dress. But Will, February 21st, banner day for you. Trust the plans coming out, hardcover, everywhere you buy books. But it's kind of like a smaller banner day for me. Because Off the Edge, my book came out last year, coming out on paperback on the same day. We can share the party, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. For folks who did not pick up Off the Edge, your great investigation of the flat Earth movement, its origins, the people behind it now. Some truly wild stories, including one about a guy who tries to shoot a rocket up into space, at least up into air, to prove the Earth is flat. It's a great read. And it will now be available in paperback.
2: Sweet. Pick them up at the same time. Two for one. Can't promise any discounts on that, but you'll have two nice books.
1: All right. So, Kelly, we've been following the Kanye West presidential campaign, the Ye campaign. Now, this is one that has been dormant for a little while, but I think there have been some developments here.
2: Yeah, totally. So the Ye campaign has hit a little bit of a roadblock. It had to do with all the Kanye endorsing Hitler that can sometimes put a little bit of a stopper in a campaign. But we're finally getting some new campaign finance documents from the Kanye campaign. And this is the good stuff. It's nice to see how the rich and famous live. And in this case, we're seeing Just how much Kanye paid to a couple of, frankly, neo Nazis. Our pal Roger Sullenberger at the Daily Beast caught this. He found that in these most recent campaign filings, Kanye paid Nick Fuentes, this is, of course, the Gruyper leader, kind of young little white nationalist guy, paid him $9,000 for travel reimbursements on the day that they went to Mar a Lago together for dinner. Now, okay, $9,000 to go to Mar a Lago. I've got questions. Did they fly like a private jet or something? I know they've taken and maybe charter flights around to Tim Pool's podcast. But I got a lot of questions about what exactly cost $9,000 to jet on over to Florida.
1: Yeah, they love traveling by PJ, as those of us in the know say. (laughs) The interesting payment here for me was that, so people may remember that Milo Yuenopoulos was sort of pushed out of the Kanye campaign under mysterious circumstances. Some figures like Laura Loomer, who Milo has a feud with, seemed to get a little closer to Kanye. Ali Alexander came in and started running the show. And so there was this kind of moment where it seemed like Milo was a little extraneous to the operations such as they were and got the boot. But when he left, he had a pretty he was pretty tight-lipped about his exit, which sort of suggested to me that there was a payoff or at least one he wanted. Now TMZ reported at the time that Milo had sent Kanye a $116,000 invoice. Now, folks have to keep in mind, this was for a couple weeks of work, which I think was mainly like, what if we set you up a telegram, Kanye? Stuff like that. So,
2: How do you value friendship, really?
1: For someone who's, who's kind of doing all the worst things, maybe it should be highly. But so he, in the end, according to this FEC report, he ended up getting forty grand, which I have to say is not a bad payday. But interestingly, he also got roughly $10,000 for transferring a domain name. Now, domain names cost about $20 on Google. (laughs) And that's a pretty sweet deal, I think.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of like kind of inadvertent little nuggets in this filing. One that's really interesting to me is it confirms some long-held speculation that Milo was living in Marjorie Taylor Greene's, at least her hometown, maybe hanging out with her a lot because he's listed as living in Rome, Georgia. Now, Milo has weird ties to Marjorie Taylor Greene. He was previously like her former intern. That's part of the feud that MTG has with Laura Loomer. So there's layers upon layers here, and it's all finally spelling out into federal documents.
1: So this is an odd one. We'd love to know what's going on with the machinations behind these characters and Typically, members of Congress do not live with their interns, I would say. At least they shouldn't. And so it was interesting to me when Laura Loomer and some other folks started claiming that Milo was living in this town of Rome, Georgia, in Marjorie Taylor Greene's house. Now, the FEC report suggests that he definitely lives in Rome, Georgia. But the house, I've looked into this in the past, is not, I believe, owned by Marjorie Taylor Greene. So it is still very odd to live in Rome, Georgia, if you are Milo Yiannopoulos. And I think there's perhaps another shoe to drop there. The other thing I would say here is the FEC report is particularly interesting because obviously Kanye is a rich guy. He's significantly less rich guy now, but I mean, he's still got a lot of money. And we had this thought that these grifters were sort of circling him and trying to get money any which way they could. And it certainly seems like they did. This doesn't even get into the possibility that other money was transferred outside of an official president presidential campaign that maybe for other services render. I mean, we don't know, but I could easily see that. I don't think this is the most rigorously accounted for campaign.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And if there's any consolation in this report, it's that people aren't really giving to the ascendant Kanye campaign. He's not getting, or at least not reporting any campaign contributions in this. He spent about 142000 of his own money during this period, which is from October to December. So he's shelling out and it seems like these folks are definitely getting their payday, but it's not really clear that anybody is fundraising this campaign, at least that we can see.
1: It seems that for now, the Kanye campaign is dormant. There's this video going around this week of him grabbing a woman's phone out of her car and perhaps trashing it. There's a legal issue there. More recently, Nick Fuentes has put out a video really bashing Milo. People have been giving their kind of postmortems on the campaign, folks who were involved in it. So I think... For now, we can rest easy. I think President Kanye is at least a couple more cycles in the future. Okay, Kelly, there was a showdown last week over who would chair the Republican National Committee. Donald Trump got involved. How are things shaken out? And what is the Republican establishment I mean? What are their thoughts these days on old Donald Trump?
2: So, okay, I know we've said this maybe mm, 18 times at least since the 2016 presidential campaign, but... It does kind of feel like there's a bit of a vibe shift going on right now. People are maybe, maybe cooling on Trump in the RNC, and I'll tell you why. So this RNC convention, they're picking their new president, kind of a proxy battle, right, where... Folks are frankly not too impressed with the Trump wing of the party. Didn't really do too well for them in the midterms. And so people are convening and they're airing some grievances. The Times has really good reporting on exactly the the temperature of this recent RNC meeting. There are 168 members of the RNC who will convene to vote on leadership and the Times polled all of them. They got interviews with 59 of them, and they only found four people who were really enthusiastic about a Trump. 2024 run. Four of them, the Times said, offered unabashed endorsement of the Trump 2024 campaign. 20 said they did not want him to be the nominee. Another 35. Sounds like they sort of hedged. They said, oh, we want a wide field of challengers or they wouldn't outright state an opinion. And the rest of them just said, not talking to the Times. This is really interesting to me because it does kind of show the Republican Party in a moment of flux, I think, in a moment when they're looking back on the 2022 midterms and saying, "Mm, is this going to work for us? Is this our guy? And so Listen, this is coming when there is a lot of speculation about like a Ron DeSantis run. There's frankly, I think maybe a little bit, a little bit of boredom around Trump events. You see him show up to like a -a Mar-a-Lago thing. You see him give a speech at the Diamonds Memorial Ceremony. And I gotta say, I'm feeling a little bit of low energy from this figure right now. I don't know that he really necessarily has the 2016 juice and it's starting to sound like maybe some republican operatives are sharing the same fears
1: you watch these events these trump events we talked about this in the past but there's it's just kind of like i expected him to sort of do a bit of a rebrand not necessarily a nicer guy but a little more pizzazz to it and the same talking points the same stuff the rnc fight here is interesting to me because so this was of course rona mcdaniel backed by trump the longtime rnc chair and a big time loser in terms of elections <laughs> this is the grievance people have with her so she lost 2018 she lost 2020 and then they obviously did not do very well as well as they should have in the midterms so people have been calling for her to be ousted of course mike lindell mr my pillow was running the more competitive candidate was harmeet Dillon. so she's this go-to lawyer for right-wing characters and so she's someone who has done a lot of media appearances and sort of i think has some like she's a credible enough character with the base but she's also not like a totally out there loon in the way that mike lindell might be and so you you could say, well, maybe she could run the show here. So ultimately, she loses. Anyway, one thing that was interesting to me is Ron DeSantis in the last moment coming out and saying like, yeah, Harmite Dillon, she's the best. I pick her. She seemed reluctant to be the official DeSantis candidate. She said, oh, geez, okay. Now, obviously she goes down in flames. Put on your prognosticator cap here. What was all Ron DeSantis up to?
2: So, okay, this is really interesting and I agree with your characterization of Harmeet Dillon here. So for folks who are unaware, she does have some actual clout. Like, she's not a Mike Lindell, right? She ran I think the California's Republican Party for a bit, but she also has some ties with the crazy. She represents some right-wing figures like I think Andy Nuo, she represents. She's got her fingers in a couple pots there, has good sampling of the buffet of Republican flavors right now. But she was challenging Ronna McDaniel on the basis that Ronna McDaniel, pff, bad record lately.
1: It is true. She keeps losing. Oh, yeah. It is a fair grievance to setting aside, I mean, because what's important to note here is there's not really any larger, like, policy debate between these two. It's just, like, does Rona McDaniel keep losing?
2: Right. It's purely power. And what's really interesting to me about this is, even though Rona McDaniel keeps losing, you're right that there hasn't been, like, a really substantive alternative proposed. So even though nobody likes Rona McDaniel right now, folks keep voting for her. Folks keep backing her in these internal races. Trump endorsed Rona McDaniel. And, of course, even though she did not help his campaign win in 2020 she was very integral to it so I get that they're close what's interesting to me about Ron DeSantis coming out and backing Harmeet Dillon in the last moment when it was pretty clear how meet dylan was gonna lose is that it didn't really establish him as a winner so much as somebody who's just opposed to the trump wing of the party right it kind of just like cuts him away from trump it sets him in this rnc showdown as somebody who's at least offering an alternative to trump certainly isn't going along with that part of the party and i can't think of any reason to pick like an obvious loser other than that messaging if i'm to go further here This move by DeSantis comes amid, frankly, some really nasty backbiting about Trump in quiet corners of the GOP. There's good reporting this week from McKay Coffins at The Atlantic talking about how Republicans literally want Trump to die. We're not talking about Republican voters where Trump is polling really well with them, but Republican operatives, they don't want to openly oppose trump but they do not want to work with him again they don't think he's a winner they're just hoping he dies i'm going to read some quotes from this coppins piece because it's pretty good there is a desire for a deus ex machina said one gop consultant who like others i interviewed requested anonymity to characterize private conversations taking place inside the party it's like 2016 again only more fatalistic so that's where they are can't oppose trump Mm, can't really go along with him in good conscience what can they possibly hope for either he carks it or he lands in prison
1: okay so i've been watching a lot of the early seasons of vanderpump rules lately (laughs) and first this is a fabulous show i've never watched this before but there's this relationship between folks who've watched this tom sandoval and, and this lady named Kristen. they're locked in this awful relationship they're constantly cheating on each other spoilers for a show that aired in 2012 but there's this This sense of, like, oh, God, no one really wants to, like, get the guts to end it. And in that way, I see Donald Trump here as as Tom Sandoval, and I see the RNC as Kristen, the waitress, because there's this sense of... Like, Trump does not really have enough juice to win a general election, but he probably does have enough juice to pretty easily win the primary. And so they're kind of locked in this thing. And so this is what this McKay Coppins article gets at, is this sense of, like, these Republicans, everyone who might one day have sort of overthrown, kind of had the guts to throw Trump out of this party or try to start some kind of factionalism, they've already been drummed out of the party over the past seven years, whether it be the Never Trumpers or Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger, all these—this was not many people to begin with— but they're gone. And so now you're left with the Trump people and the kind of the people who are fine to let Trump do whatever he wants or are scared. So there's that aspect to it. And so instead, they end up just being like, oh, God, I hope Merrick Garland indicts him or something like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, it's hard to watch a Trump campaign rally these days and feel like this guy has the juice to even take on Joe Biden. It's not really a battle of heavyweights there. They're two older men. And that, I think, is something that Some cynics in the GOP are banking on Trump fans. I mean, listen, I was driving around upstate this weekend and upstate New York, I should say, and there were Trump 2024 flags just flying everywhere, back of trucks outside people's houses. The base still loves the guy, but the party has seen him eat it. Twice. And at this point, they don't really want to go against the people who literally stormed the Capitol to reinstall the guy, but they're eyeing their options. And barring a DeSantis, I think, groundswell, maybe the only other option for them is pretty grim.
1: Speaking of DeSantis, I, I want to circle back for a second because I think his move to, at first, I've been bearish on Ron DeSantis's political instincts and his general lack of charisma, or as kids say it now, the Riz. But that said, and so first, when he came out for Harmony Dillon, right at the moment that she was about to go down in flames, and she didn't even seem that interested in his endorsement, I thought, well, DeSantis, you've done it again. You've botched this. But I think there's kind of a genius to this, because the base continues to, to revile Ronald McDaniel. I think a lot of the pundits do as well. And we know DeSantis is kind of trying to peel off his own people among the Trumpian Twitterati. John Cardillo, a gentleman in Florida who I've written about in the past in terms of being sued over an allegedly botched arms deal to Ukraine. He has gone all in for DeSantis. So there's kind of this enclave that the DeSantis people are building online. And I I, I think this fight kind of helps set DeSantis apart. But the more important thing is, whatever, whoever's in charge of us, the GOP is going to continue to be a basket case, at least through 2024. Now, Ron DeSantis can say, well, don't blame me. I wanted Harmeet. This is not my fault. So I think this is probably perhaps a pretty savvy move on his part.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a principled stand. He's going down with the ship, much like the boats in the Trump parade. Big wave is sweeping over the bow and he's going to stand his ground. And if he ends up at the bottom of the ocean, he's stuck by his principles.
1: Okay, Kelly... The San Francisco police have released the body cam footage from the hammer attack on Paul Pelosi a few months back. Now we know the right wing characters that we follow had spread many conspiracy theories about this attack. I am presuming that the release of the body cam footage pretty conclusively put these theories to rest. Or did it?
2: No, absolutely. After the release of the body cam footage, everyone on the right is authoring a personal apology letters to Paul Pelosi saying, dude, we're so sorry you got beat with a hammer. No, of course, that didn't happen at all. So to recap, a couple months back, somebody broke into Nancy Pelosi's house, beat her husband has been Paul with a hammer. Folks pretty quickly got the name of the attacker. His name is David DePappe. He was a prolific blogger on pretty much every terrible conspiracy theory you can imagine, right? He's pretty open about this stuff, pretty clear in his motives, thought the Pelosi's are lizard people. Not necessarily that far, but conspiracy theorists attacked an old man with a hammer.
1: He was really sort of like a guy who just like you could enter 4chan or the Donald or whatever. I mean, this was a guy who he was into QAnon. He was into Gamergate. I mean, he was really into just sort of everything on the menu.
2: Yeah, he really great sample. If I were to kind of conspiracy 101, this was a pretty good blog. Unfortunately, again, it did lead to a hammer attack on a quite senior man. But right after that attack, if you remember, the right had to sort of cut some distance between themselves and David DePape, who frankly was issuing a lot of the same conspiracy theories that mainstream Republicans have sort of promoted. The go-to talking point right after the attack was to kind of imply that DePape and Pelosi were gay for each other, I think, because why else would he be in Pelosi's house? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So This week, San Francisco police released the body cam footage that should really set all of these conspiracy theories to right. And if you watch it, and you certainly don't have to, there's some really disturbing imagery in this, but police come up to the Pelosi home, open the door. They open it, and Paul Pelosi is standing there like in his gym shorts trying to talk down a guy who is very clearly wielding a hammer with the intent to attack him. Police, hate to say it, kind of rile things up, get Dave DePape a bit upset. He goes in last possible chance to attack, swings his hammer at this old man, police jump on him, etc. That should be the end of it, but of course it's not.
1: I guess I would characterize the mood when they open the door as sort of like exactly what you would think. There's a very deranged man in my house with a weapon and i've managed to talk him down for a second it sort of seems like they're both holding the hammer like it's like well why don't you give me the hammer there and then when the police say there was not a lot of great de-escalation training from the police because they just say hey put that hammer down man and then de pape says i don't think so essentially and goes at it it's very brutal footage so, so as you said i mean i feel like the footage sort of relayed exactly what we all expected
2: yeah absolutely right it's pretty hard to make like a gay twist out of that footage it looks very straightforward like a hammer attack But the right has managed to do this. So right around the release of this footage, we've got Benny Johnson, formerly uh, BuzzFeed Benny, now the Turning Point USA figure. He goes and he pumps up this conspiracy theory, just asking questions about the footage. He asks his audience if the video put any conclusion at hand or if it raises more questions and concerns about the attack. Yeah, I mean, I have a concern it's a man hitting another man with a hammer. He goes on to say, frankly, that is how you actually make situations like this far worse when you utilize them for political gain or treat them as political football. It's macabre. It's dark. It's sick. He's talking, of course, about the release of the body cam footage that the right has agitated for. They've been calling for this footage because they say it's going to vindicate their position. And once it's released, oh no, that's political football. You can't show that. That's cynical.
1: It is sort of like Benny's saying, like, case closed. He sort of like instantly, like, how dare you? As soon as he's just proven, he's like, stop talking about this stuff. I mean, it is... The quest for footage of all kinds is truly a sort of a fascinating detail in the American right right now. I mean, a big aspect of the Republican takeover of the House is that people are now calling for them to release all of the footage from January 6th, which they think will show people like Ray Epps and Antifa collaborating to trick these poor Trump supporters into the raiding the Capitol. And so, in this case, you have sort of anything can be delayed until the footage comes out. And you can say, Well, I'll wait until we get the footage. And then, when the footage comes out, you say, Ooh, let's move on here. <laughs>
2: No, granted, not all of them have moved on. A friend of the show, Laura Loomer, she's back on Twitter. She finally, her protest chaining herself to the Twitter HQ doors has finally worked. She's back. And she tweeted that, quote, it's looking more and more like a grinder booty call gone wrong. So again, I'm not going to like linger too long on the homophobia here. It's just kind of a reflex for the right. But they got the footage they're looking for. Doesn't show anything amiss. But because I think the talking point now is that Paul Pelosi is like wearing gym shorts in this attack. He didn't put on pants to be attacked with a hammer. That, that's a gay thing.
1: It is sort of a, just sort of a bizarre a bizarre saga. I mean, this really, for folks who don't kind of consume right-wing media as much as we do, it's hard to stress enough how much this idea of a gay, fair, gone sour, that this was sort of taken as the orthodoxy in right-wing media. This idea that this was a tryst gone south. There were various things that fueled this. DePape, several years ago, was involved in these kind of left-wing countercultural movements in San Francisco. This guy named Michael Shelley. Schellenberger, who's sort of this contrarian guy who hangs out around San Francisco and wrote the book with the really incredible name, San Francisco.
2: (laughs) Got him.
1: (laughs) Is one of the kind of Elon Musk guys with the releasing the Twitter files. He went to DePape's neighborhood and everyone says, well, I don't know. He's always a left wing guy. Well, yeah, I mean, he wasn't saying I'm going to whack Paul Pelosi with a hammer. I also want to bring up Michael Schellenberger because he's kind of sticking in my craw lately. His Twitter handle is Schellenberger MD. So I think people say, oh, this guy's a doctor. But those are just his initials so and he says well they're my initials but come on give me a break give me a break you
2: know what you're doing <laughs> my son phil h david phd
1: It's <laughs> my initials so there was all this kind of like mudding the water around it and i think at least for those of us who are outside of this community sort of outside of this right-wing media ecosystem i think the body camera puts things to rest however these hoaxes will no doubt continue
2: all right will who do we have as our guest this week
1: all right kelly this week we've got Nikki wolf sky is one of the old timers in the game going back to 2015 2016 it's a guy who's hanging out with me in dc covering the right he had a podcast called finding q looking into qanon which may be of interest to our audience but this week we've got him on because he's got a new podcast it's called the sound and it's about one of the most infamous sounds or maybe non-existent sounds in world politics today the Havana syndrome sound. Was it crickets? Was it a Russian espionage device or a Cuban espionage device? Who knows? And so Nikki is trying to get to the bottom of it with this podcast and sort of exploring all of the ramifications of this thing that may or may not have existed at all. It's an interesting look into, like a lot of his earlier works, an interesting look into belief and things, conspiracy theories and all this sort of stuff. So I'm really enjoying the podcast. I'm glad to have him on.
2: Having a good time. Fevered Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet.
1: Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation.
2: Head to feveredreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up.
1: Okay, this week on the podcast, we've got Nikki Wolf. He's a reporter and podcaster. He's got a new podcast out that I really recommend. It's called The Sound. And it's Nikki getting into the guts of the story of Havana syndrome. Nikki, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Now, Nikki, first of all, what is Havana syndrome? So in 2016, at the end
0: of 2016, officials at the U.S. Embassy in Havana, Cuba, and we now know that those first few officials were CIA agents started experiencing some weird stuff. The symptoms included confusion, dizziness, splitting headaches, insomnia, and they all heard a kind of a weird sound, right? And so the first official went and reported this. It was a couple of weeks, two more came forward, and then three after that, the diplomats in the embassy started getting hit. And at first, people just called it the thing. And it was a very tightly guarded secret. I mean, people were advised this was a classified matter. They went to... Tell even their sort of spouses, and then as the spring of 2017 kind of rolled on, cases turned into two dozen, and people started asking questions. It got run up the chain at State Department, got run up the chain at, at the big agencies, and it got run up the chain with the Cubans. And in August, it broke in the press. Obviously, people were, started asking questions, and that's when it got the name Havana Syndrome. And it's a name that's kind of unfair, right? We'll get into into why maybe a bit later, but it, the name itself lays blame the Cubans in a way that will later seem very unfair, especially as cases by summer and by autumn of twenty seventeen had spread all over the world. There are now to this day, and there's cases still coming out in cases in Vienna and Hanoi and Guangzhou and hundreds of other places and yeah it's sort of spread globally.
1: I guess the first question is is Havana syndrome real? On the left in particular you see a lot of discussions about this idea that Havana syndrome is psychosomatic, it's fake, these people are just kind of making it up. On the other hand it seems to have affected a lot of people. So what's the story there? I mean you've been investigating this. Is it a real thing? So
0: we've investigated a lot of these different angles and everyone is very very powerfully convinced by their own argument and the psychogenic argument, the idea that it might be all in people's heads, is a very strong and compelling one. I think at the core of this, not to sort of spoiler the podcast too much, that there was a real attack of some kind with some kind of intentionality and with some kind of device. And we can get into what sort of device that might be. We also believe that there's a huge amount of psychogenic transfer going on, especially once it's in the public domain. Psychogenic is when The psychogenic hypothesis is that the human brain and the power of suggestion is very strong and can cause physical symptoms. But we did find some holes in that, especially with the first few cases, that first cohort of 24 in Havana, that really made the psychogenic hypothesis feel a little more shaky than it at first seemed. So yeah, I I believe something real did happen here.
2: So obviously, State Department CIA have looked into this sudden illness, whatever you want to call it, of a lot of agents. What's been their conclusion about what's going on?
0: This is part of what's so wild about this story because there have been, to my count, seven official investigations that we know about by various U.S. agencies, entirely possibly more that we don't know about, of course. Those have all come to wildly different conclusions and so have the sort of parallel scientific institutions that have investigated. So for example, the Jason group which is a Cold War group of scientists who advise the government on technology issues. They came to the conclusion that the sound that had been heard, and people made recordings of that sound, was probably the indie short-tailed cricket mating call. That was backed up by some research by some entomologists at the University of California. But the Jason group themselves then pivoted and came to the conclusion that a cricket sound couldn't cause the symptoms. So they came down with some prevarication on the psychogenic hypothesis. The State Department commissioned a big headline investigation by the National Academy of Sciences. They came down on the side that it was likely a microwave energy type event. The FBI's initial investigation said that there was nothing to it. The State Department's first investigation came up with the theory of a sonic energy device. The FBI sent, I think, its largest ever overseas investigative team to Havana, They were the only ones who coordinated even at all with the the Cuban investigative authorities. The FBI came to the conclusion that the State Department and the CIA's initial investigation were kind of full of it. Sidebar, fascinating to me how much the FBI and the CIA just hate each other. They're just (laughs) really, really not big fans of each other.
1: Get two alphas in a room. going to be tough. (laughs)
0: That's sort of, I think, because the FBI considers themselves like hard-bitten gumshoe cops and the CIA consider their job to break the laws of other countries, right? The biggest and latest investigations, I think parts of it was classified, parts of it leaked by BuzzFeed as the CIA's major second investigation. They came to the conclusion, and this got smashed all over the headlines, which I think was really interesting. This came out, I think, in 2021, maybe even early 2022, when BuzzFeed got hold of a leaked copy. They came to the conclusion that a foreign adversary was, that there was, quote, no evidence that a foreign adversary was doing this. And then sort of buried in the end of this investigation was, but we don't know what happened in those first 24 Havana cases. So nobody can really agree. And what we really came down to was the the core question and the only question for which the data is really trustworthy because as one of the doctors said once it's in the public domain people will know how to feel already but that first 24 cases is key to figuring out what the hell is going on? So, we had to triage all of these investigations and try and come to some conclusion of our own. But there's still no solid agreement among even within the US government as to what the hell happened here.
2: So, you talk about these first 24 cases, right? These are kind of like the patient zeros all at once, maybe the most scientifically sound group to study. I mean, what has this shown to have any like discrete, distinct symptoms that are different from, say, a migraine? What are doctors actually finding in people who reported the first cases?
0: So what we're looking at here, and the phrase that researchers quickly came to was the immaculate concussion. It is, it's is—it's a traumatic brain injury is what they describe. So it is what you get from a hard helmet to helmet hit in the NFL, right? They were finding things that showed up on brain scans. Now, brain scan science is dodgier than people think. There was an initial brain scan study that came out in 2018 that found, quote, damage to widespread brain networks. Now that's been called into question because damage is something that requires kind of a before and after picture, and all of these officials had not had brain scans before being sent to Cuba. But there have now been, I think, four separate brain imaging studies, including one by the Canadians on their diplomats who also got hit in Havana. There were 15 Canadians, all of which have found what they say is is evidence of a traumatic brain injury. Now the Proponents of the psychogenic hypothesis will come back and say, sure, but a lot of the constellation of symptoms that are used to diagnose this, again, those nausea, headaches, insomnia, even believing hearing a strange sound, all still fit with the psychogenic hypothesis if you take the brain scans as something that could be evidence but also could be not. But there are also some symptoms that we've found in the people we've spoken to which really can't fit with psychogenic. So, for example, can it make you dizzy? Sure. Can it make you bleed from your eyes?
1: No. Huh. So you talked about all these very well-resourced agencies and these scientists who couldn't really come to a conclusion. How do you, a guy with a podcast <laughs> and maybe an email account and the ability to interview people, how do you start trying to get to the bottom of this? So obviously you cast a wide net,
0: right? We spoke to as many people as we possibly could from all elements of this. Now, obviously, we didn't, crack open the doors of a white van and find some Russian dude pointing a weapon, right? So what you have to do is slice down the various theories in that kind of Occam's razor process and just sort of hope that when you eliminate things one by one, one gets left standing. And that is indeed what we've sort of found, although it's a, a sort of a hybrid theory. And as, as I say, there's obviously in, in the public now thousands of claimed cases, there's, Clearly a huge amount of psychogenic transfer going on there. Now, then there's the second part of it, which is the circumstantial evidence. And that also points towards, if it is an attack, who might be doing it? So we dug into the history of what countries like Russia and the U.S. in terms of the history of development of the kind of weapons that could do this. And it turns out there is a rich history of especially Russia using especially microwave and directed energy on American diplomats on foreign soil already going back as far as the 1950s and 60s. There's this thing called the Moscow Signal, which was a passive listening device that was placed in the office of the U.S. ambassador in in Moscow. And that was turned on remotely by microwaves. And people we spoke to who were in the embassy in in the 60s and 70s said, yeah, absolutely. We knew they were bathing us in microwave radiation this entire time, which was quite shocking to us. And that has continued. Russia does seem to have been on kind of the forefront of developing this technology. Gets very murky because we don't know exactly where that research went. We've been on the trail of one particular Russian scientist who heads their directed energy division or did up until a few years ago when he sort of vanished off the off the stage a little bit. But the U.S. has also been developing things like this. One of the most powerful pieces of evidence that we've found is patents and designs and even internal advertising videos of U.S. defense companies selling devices that do exactly what we're talking about here.
2: So you say that there is maybe evidence that the initial cases were their own event and that there is maybe a large psychosomatic spread, can you explain how people might not actually be affected by a tangible thing, but might convince themselves that they have these symptoms?
0: So one of the historical examples we used to illustrate this was what was first reported as a gas attack on an office. This was in 1972. Ten people working in an office. They were under quite high stress. They all suddenly smelt this weird thing and then all kind of started vomiting and passing out all at the same time. Ambulances were called. Because they'd said they'd had this weird smell, they evacuated the office, everyone was digging, trying to look for this mystery gas. Later on, a couple of years later, some researchers, experts in psychology interviewed all of the workers in this office and discovered that the victims of the quote-unquote gas attack had moved through a social network. So the ones who were all friends, who were all paying attention to each other and close to each other in the office... Were the people who'd come down with this and the more socially isolated and the people who sat in more isolated places in the office didn't. So that demonstrated that an illness and truly the people who were affected did not, were not faking, this is not making it up thing. It's that the brain, when it's suggested that you will have some kind of effect, can impose that effect itself. And we see this, this is well reported in terms of this is what the placebo effect is, right? Which has lots of evidence for that if you're given a sugar pill and told it will be medicine, there is a statistically significant effect of that. And conversely, what two experts called the nocebo effect is if you're given a sugar pill and then told it was poisoned, your brain instinctively makes you sick. In order to vacate that, it's an evolutionary mechanism, right? If you eat kind of prehistoric times, so if you eat a mushroom and somebody else tells you it's poisoned, you want your body to have a reaction where you suddenly feel ill and, and vomit it up, right? And that goes much, much further than I think people understand in the public imagination. The power of suggestion is very, very capable of causing all kinds of things. And people use this in a lot of fields across from laying on of hands in evangelical. Churches, which can make someone who's unable to walk via partly the adrenaline rush, partly the surroundings, and partly the sheer belief, can temporarily have somebody stand. And you see this stuff happen. Now, after that, a little while later, they kind of return back to their state. It's not true medicine. But you do see this effect demonstrated in a lot of ways. And so it is certainly a, a powerful contender for what may be happening here. The problem that we ran into is that from what we know now about the especially first very first few cases the first five or six is that they didn't even know about each other so it's it's much more difficult to imagine that psychogenic transfer is playing an effect if patient zero and patient one haven't spoken to each other right that's not something that can be transferred psychogenically
2: so if this is A malicious attack are there theories about who and why might be behind it
0: the first theory that came out was when the trump administration which was still in its early months this was the first six months of the trump administration right they pointed the finger immediately at the cuban government it got wrapped into a whole kind of cold warrior situation in which this was and this was just after cuba had opened up right obama in 2015 didn't lift the sanctions sorry didn't lift the embargo because obviously that's an act of congress and he couldn't buy executive order but everything else that he could was lifted on cuba and suddenly millions of tourist money flowed into cuba it was a real kind of hopeful moment for a country that had been a, a pariah state and that was all taken away so when we visited havana there's half-built hotels all across the skyline we spoke to people who spent their life savings opening an airbnb and then Cuba got put back on the state sponsor of terrorists by Trump and at the behest of then national security advisor, John Bolton. And we actually, we sat down with John Bolton, put some of these questions to him and he said, yeah, this was just the pretext we were looking for. So it had, it got caught up in that political thing. They expelled Cuban diplomats. No one serious that we've spoken to thinks this is even remotely within the capabilities of the Cuban government or within their interests to do so. And the main culprit is of course Moscow because there's we've seen and continue to see it, it fits with the pattern of how Russia operates. I and mean, you look at things like in the UK, the assassination of defectors like Alexander Litvinenko, the Russian security forces just kind of love messing with people, right? It's part of what they do. And there's a lot in all of this spy versus spy game that comes out of the Cold War. Now, one of the big theories is that like it was in the Moscow signal, this could be some kind of surveillance equipment rather than some kind of weapon. It is hard to imagine that if it is the Russian security forces, they don't know at this point that it is harmful. They are certainly suspect number one. And if it is an intimidation tactic, what we've heard is that it has been a towering success. The CIA and the State Department are really struggling to fill overseas posts, especially with people with families for whom this is scary. This is, it changes the risk metric of whether you want to move your family to Vienna for a diplomatic or intelligence posting.
1: So Nikki, reporting this story, you're entering a world of spy craft and all this sort of back and forth. What are some of the stranger things or the wilder things that happened to you while you were tracking this down?
0: Well, I mean, certainly, even though we were expecting this, there have been moments where I've been sort of lying down and been like, "Oh shit, what's that sound? Is this <laughs> the thing to me?" Which does obviously kind of show the power of that sort of psychogenic thing. The, the wildest stuff I think has been when we looked into what kind of research has been going on in this kind of field, and we have heard that not only does America possess devices like the ones that would be described as the kind that could do this stuff that we saw in Havana, but that they're actively we've heard have deployed it in the field. And we've spoken to people who've seen them deployed, which was a moment of just, oh, shit. Because we've been kind of in the trenches together on the on story at various points. I'm a reporter who talks about conspiracy theories. And so I was well down for the, the power of the mind and how much you can get caught up in these rabbit holes and how it can sort of brainworms can, can turn you into someone completely different. I did not expect to be coming out of this story saying, yeah, I think some shit went down here. So that journey has been a real a real trip.
1: Okay, we've been joined by journalist Nikki Wolf. His new podcast on Havana Syndrome is called The Sound. Nikki, I'm guessing this podcast is available wherever people get their podcasts.
0: Wherever you get your podcast, and the full name is The Sound Mystery of Havana Syndrome. There is, I think, an evangelical Christian podcast that hasn't released in three years, also called The
1: Sound. I was gonna say it's a bold search engine play on your part. The podcast is called The Sound. He's on Twitter at Nikki Wolf. That's W O O L F. His earlier podcast is called finding q an investigation into the origins of QAnon. nikki thank you so much for joining us thank you
0: so much for having me this is great fun
1: and now we come to fresh hell segment where in this case kelly delves into the right-wing media to find another truly disturbing story kelly what do we have today
2: so, okay, well, happened again, as it does quite often. Police kill a black man, and Fox News' immediate reaction is to look for the Antifa super soldiers who are coming to behead you in the town square. We're talking, of course, about the killing of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police, really disturbing footage, understandably sparked a lot of anger. And listen, these killings do inspire protests, but there's this reflex on the right now to look at protests and say, hmm, what if these people come and burn down my neighborhood? And to sometimes maybe fudge it, maybe fabricate some details about someone coming to burn down their neighborhood. Right after this footage was released, there was a flyer circulating on Twitter, first posted by Rob O'Donnell. He's a former NYPD kind of guy. And I've got to read some segments of this flyer to you because it's really good. It's a call to action. It's post up outside all New York police department facilities, burn it all down, bring, and then it has a list of, like, items that you're supposed to bring? Rocks.
1: Heavy objects.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Rocks, heavy objects, kerosene, umbrellas, and it gives some advice. Wear all black. Cover your face. Bring a knife or other tool to free unlawfully detained comrades. Now, okay. (laughs) So it has this advice. It's got kind of a copy-pasted like anarchist flag situation going on. Listen, in the process of, like, reporting on this, but you do talk to Antifa a little bit insofar as they exist. And you get kind of a sense of what they advise for these demonstrations. And I'm going to tell you right now that anarchists going to a protest are not going to honor whether someone has been lawfully or unlawfully (laughs) detained. (laughs) <laughs> they're not going to say.
1: I like the idea that they're like, look, that guy had it coming. Look, we're all we're all packing weapons, but like that guy was just not behaving well.
2: Right. Free your unlawfully detained comrades. So if that guy was lawfully detained, that's fine. Police, we respect you. Go on your way. Unlawfully ones, bring a knife or other tool and we'll lose him. Someday
1: someone should put out, I mean, this kind of the fake flyer thing, which always flares up whenever there's like any possibility of a of, of protest. Someone should do a coffee table book of these someday because there's sort of a very uniquely American form of literature and art. There's always one or two real tells that it's fake because you actually read these from these Antifa groups. They're usually they're not quite as explicit. They don't say bring weapon. They, they say like put your phone on put your phone on airplane mode stuff like that.
2: Yeah, it's not like please document all crimes please bring your buddy have their first last name social security number written down on your arm. No, I mean like if anyone is actually going to commit a crime, they're not advertising crime tips on the internet. So these fake flyers, which you're right they do pop up every time there does appear to be a protest coming up. Really? I think kind of show the the right wing id they kind of show the specter of the left in, in conservatives' mind because you're just really explicit about what exactly the right thinks goes on at racial justice protests and even though listen this flyer fake as hell everyone can tell it's fake as hell It still got tons and tons of traffic in the right-wing media ecosystem. Right after it appeared on Twitter, Daily Mail hyped it up. Jesse Waters of Fox News invited Rob O'Donnell onto his show to talk about protests and riots happening at precincts all across New York City. Those actually didn't happen. There was like a march through Times Square. At this point, they're just presaging riots that don't actually happen. Tucker Carlson later on that night featured the poster, suggested it was evidence of a, quote, Antifa criminal conspiracy. I think the talk about a criminal conspiracy is really interesting to me right now because it strikes me that we haven't had a major left-wing protest movement since the rights attack on the Capitol. And Even on January 6th, we did have the right blaming the insurrection on Antifa. So there's been this real desperation to cast the left as equally or more violent than the right. And so I think the right does have a lot of this language now internalized, right? They are ready to sort of regurgitate a lot of the same language about sedition and conspiracy and we need the FBI And they have it on hand waiting for the next major protest movement, right? I can't imagine how the right would have used that language during the George Floyd protests. I do get the sense that the right is very much ready for a chance to point at the left and say, aha, they're just as bad as us, (laughs) they're worse. And I think there's a lot of that informing these hoaxes, these fake flyers when they start circulating. And of course, at this point, the left really has not lived up to those grim visions.
1: Kelly, I think that's a really great point. I think there's been a lot of talk with Republicans taking over the House of sort of a counterpart to the January 6th committee to say, not just, we're gonna, okay, we're gonna have multiple committees, we're gonna have the committee that investigates the truth about January 6th. But there's also been talk about, oh, we're gonna have a committee to investigate the 2020 riots. Riots are kind of in the rear view. It's been almost three years now. I certainly see this desire to see kind of a larger conspiracy theory. I think, I gotta say though, I mean, just personally, this stuff (laughs) drives me so crazy with these right wing guys all they got it's just a graphic on Twitter. And it's obviously fake. It's like they just saw a PNG file and they're just like, All right, well, good enough for me.
2: Yeah, it is kind of crazy, just like how low the bar is for right-wing reporters. It's like, oh man, I saw a scary picture. And, and that's literally that's the nine o'clock news segment. It's a whole block. They bring on they've got this guy, Gabriel Nadales, who they say is an ex Antifa member. Oh
1: my gosh, I'm fascinated by this oh, guy. Wow. Have you ever looked into this guy? So
2: a tiny bit. I've recently started reading his book. Oh my
1: god, I should have sent you my copy.
2: Okay. <laughs> yeah, this (laughs) We're spitballing future segments right here. This is the magic and action. No, but so there's this guy, Gabriel Nodality. Whenever there's any kind of left-wing protest movement, he comes on to Fox, talks about his time as an Antifa member. doesn't quite pass the smell test to me. There is a lot of chatter about him on the left people saying, did anyone ever run into this guy? Do you know this guy? And I guess this sort of speaks to maybe a fundamental misunderstanding between the right and the left over what exactly anti-fascist demonstration is, because you can't really be a member of Antifa, right? You can't be a member of feminism. It's a political ideology. Sometimes people will show up for a pro row protest, just like people will show up to counter-demonstrate neo-Nazi activity. So to say that you're like an ex-Antifa member, pretty nebulous criteria there. And I think that makes it very ripe for grifters, right? People who want to get that Fox News interview to be the person who was in Antifa, but saw their way out. Just like we were talking the other week about people who were getting deprogramming from liberal colleges, right? I think that's, that's a story, that's a narrative that the right really wants. And man, does this guy sell it. It looks like he's got another rich month ahead of him.
1: Fascinating character. Always very vague about his Antifa experience, I would say, which certainly raises my eyebrows. So as the music takes you out here, We've been talking a lot about what's going to happen to Diamond and Silk now that Diamond has passed on. But folks, the news is good. Diamond and Silk will continue with only Silk. On Monday, Silk tweeted, Diamond brought the fire. Silk will stoke the flames. Oh, it's on and popping. So Silk will continue to do her thing.
2: Diamond's memory lives on. Salute. Yes. On that note, Let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture.
1: We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.